Hello, and welcome to episode 241 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Edward Davis, creator of The Immortal Age, now on Kickstarter. Ed, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Um, let's do how we normally start these things off with a, with a quick bio and an elevator pitch for this cool book on Kickstarter. Okay, thanks. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you bringing me back on. So, my, my book is Immortal Era, and it's currently on its fifth issue. And the basic elevator pitch for the story is it's a apocalyptic story placed 200 years in the future in a world where no one can die. So in the year 2000, there's a mysterious event that renders the entire globe completely immortal. With their immortality, they don't gain any special abilities, no powers. They continue to age. They can still get sick. If a limb gets cut off, nothing's going to grow back. Story centers on a group of um, underground dwellers who live in an abandoned subway system. Out, relics from the past, trying to discover exactly why people stop and to find a way to restore the natural life cycle and save humanity by killing them. Very cool. And uh, also, can you let us know, like, your background like uh you know with with comics and what you're what you're doing with with this comic here yeah so my background is this is actually my first writing project so i had been a writer i i had published several short stories and poems in different little anthologies but had never really thought about getting into comic books until the librarian at the school that i work at said, you know, this story's great. We should make it into a comic. So at that point, I kind of started adapting all of these pages that was that were originally intended to be a novel or even a novel, a several novel sequence and um, started turning them into books and just kind of went out there, looked at what needed to be done to create my own company and start publishing my own work. So yeah, I just went from just a kind of writing here and there to really focusing in on moving this series along. It's awesome. Yeah. I remember sort of the, uh, the origin story of, you know, discussing the, the story idea and, 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 you know, the friend, the librarian saying, you know, this would work really well as, as a comic. Um, did you have like yeah. a, uh, did you have like a lifelong, um, you know, connection to comics? I know sometimes, you know, as, you know, as kids were into it, we grow, we grow away from it and then sort of rediscover it um, as, as we get older. But what, what was your path was with comics? Um, with me, I had always had a lifelong comics. I mean, I started five reading those old Mar Marvel trade paper come up. At, so I read the Avengers trades and the old Spider-Man and X-Men and just loved comic books. And as I was growing up, always I would, you know, anytime I went down to the corner market, I'd walk home with a stack of comic books and always had a love for comic books and the storytelling it, until I, I kind of reached a point for several years where I wasn't reading as much of the Marvel and DC. And then I discovered Sandman and Preacher and kind of reignited my, my passion for comic books. But with me, it came down to never thought I could actually create a comic book because I have no artistic talent at all and I just assumed that you have to be able to draw to be able to write a book I didn't realize that the two 
don't have to be don't have to be connected. You can have no artistic talent, inability to draw even a good stick figure, and still be a comic book writer. So it wasn't until I realized that, and it wasn't even until later on down the down the years that I realized, wait, you don't have to be an artist to be a comic book writer. So I think that's when I realized I could do something that I loved. And, you know, I have a garage full of long boxes that have shown that, you know, collections that go all the way back to the eighties when I was collecting as a kid. Nice. So, you know, you mentioned earlier in sort of that bio that you had some experience in like short stories and I guess maybe some longer form writing. Have you ever done anything that was like a prose or novella or something even, even longer? I had done a novella. I did that in college and it, it published. So I had written that pub. Most that I had had was just little things in different college anthologies and stuff like that. And even a couple of um, papers, like I wrote a paper on art history. So stuff like that, that got published in little journals. But as far as publishing on my own, the most I had done was short stories and poems. So this is my first actual published long form work that I have. So I know like sometimes if I get a, a book uh, of short stories, it can be done in sort of a number of ways where it's just sort of like, right, this is your story. Um, and it's almost like uh, there's like a page count, but sometimes they'll divide them into like part one, part two, where, where any of your short stories yeah. done that way. Cause I'm thinking if it was, that might sort of help you with the, with the structure of a comic book series. Um, no, none of those were, but when I was writing, I wrote things with, you know, intent of closing out a part with, with cliffhangers and things like that. So the, the structure that I was writing didn't, I mean, it, it honestly, it didn't write itself to comic book writing and I had to play with and a, adapt some things to make it so it fit the comic book format. And one of those things is, of course, just cutting things out because a novel you can be as wordy as you want but when you're writing a comic book you have to actually let the reader see the art you can't cover up all the art with your dialogue and that was the first problem I had with issue one it was just so much dialogue we had to cut and cut and cut to get it down so that was my first realization that okay this is a different writing you you can't be quite so wordy and still make a comic book so a lot of it was trial by fire, just kind of learning as I went along, but following the structure as someone who had read thousands upon thousands of comic books, just following that structure of kind of that, that monthly hook that gets you wanting to read the next issue and the next issue. Nice. And so with this point of the story where we're running a Kickstarter that's you know one through five um what is the what is the plan for for this series is um do you have sort of uh a structure in mind that you're you're looking to to get to I mean with issue five where will that sort of put us in this world issue five gets close to closing out the first story arc so what I've done is kind of taken extensive notes I have when I first started the series and shaped all, all of those notes to six issue story arcs. So each one can be collected in a trade and people can read, you know, they're a, somewhat of a conclusion, but knowing that the story has 
more continuation to go. So I've reshaped it so it can fit into that trade style because I know a lot of readers, even readers of indie comics, you'll go to a con and people ask, oh, when's the trade coming out? Because a lot of people don't collect single issues. It's just kind of something that is from the past. You know, someone like me always collected single issues. Trades are convenient, but I always like to own all the issues in a run of a story that I love. And the mentality now is wait for the trade. So I have to write and brings trades out every, you know, with, with me, it won't be every six months because I'm not Marvel doing a monthly schedule, but at least every eight year and a half or so have a trade that comes out. Nice. So the, the, the plan is sort of like every six issues is a, is a story arc that can be collected. Yeah. Um, so you know, with this being five, we're, we're pushing towards the end of the, the first story arc here. Yeah. So issue five will be, issue five is a lot of setup for where the story arc's going to close out. So it kind of moves the characters into the place that they, the places they need to be so that we can have that big moment in issue six where we, we have conclusions to part, partial conclusions to storylines. And of course, with the way this story structured, more questions will come up as well. Yeah, I think that's pretty common in, in it, it doesn't even matter sort of like what the length of it is. Like I'm thinking of some of these, you know, 12 issue series that DC has put out in the last couple of years, a lot of them written by like Tom King, sort of like, um, I don't know if you have been reading like the Rorschach book, but like at 11, he like sort of put all the pieces to have that sort of final confrontation in, in 12 and, and wrap oh. some things up. So it sounds like, you know, you have different story lengths here, but it's, you know, a lot of times when you're telling a story, you're sort of like building, building, building. Um, and then, you know, with five, you got to build some more to get to that climax, which we'll, which we'll get in six, right? Yes. Cool. So let's, uh, let's take a step back. Um, again, towards the, the start of the, the project, you said that um, you came to the realization that you could do this as, as a writer, um, but yeah. you needed to get an art team on board. So, you know, you, you, mm -hmm. you get the idea that, that you're going to take this to be, to be uh, a comic book. So did you know anybody um, personally that you thought could do this? Was this an online search for, for somebody that you thought was a fit for the book? Yeah, originally the, the librarian was going to do the artwork because he's he's a um, Kubert School graduate from the school that's out in New Jersey and has a background in comic books. But the problem was with working a day job, it's it was hard for him to commit to finishing the pages. So it reached a point where I realized, okay, he can still be on and he still works as the letterer on the on the series but I needed to go and find another artist. And I did that just through a basic internet search. I just went on Google and said, writer seeking artist for comic book and found you know thousands upon thousands of searches. And I found a place that was structured like a news group where the artists would say, okay, I'm looking for work. And they put links to their, um, to their portfolio. So I could go through and look and see what kind of portfolio worked for the kind of book that I was looking to make and then discovered 
Caesar through just one of these one of these message boards and went back and forth with him and realized that he he definitely had the sensibility to do kind of that gritty 90s style, which was what I was looking for, because that was that was the big years I was reading comic books. So when it feels like a 90s book to me, I loved that. So he was still doing everything on paper was I mean, nothing wrong with digital artists and there's some amazing work, but it that it didn't have the the kind of vibe looking for. And then it was he had already worked with our colorist series, um, this another indie series, Scorpio. So he had worked with our colorist Viviana and said, hey, you know, she's looking for more work. So would you like to bring her in on the team? So he brought a colorist and they had worked together. So there was wasn't any learning curve for those two because they had all worked together and it just it really worked out that they that I brought I basically had a full art team brought when I found Caesar. Nice um, so one of the questions I ask people when they're looking through portfolios um, and you know you want to do you know story how story hero telling here so were you were you looking for um, Caesar to be able to do sort of like the, the the splash pages, the heroic poses, but also, you know, if you have to have like the team come together and do a debrief, he can sort of do like a talking head scene as well. Did you did you see both of that when you looked at um, the portfolio? I, I, I looked for both of those things because, I mean, my my book does have a lot of just kind of talking head moments. Like, okay, we we've had a big scene and now we're going to have four or five pages of just kind of building up to where things are going to go. So it's talking heads and can you make that interesting and diverse and not just feel like you're looking at the same panel copy and pasted. So I looked at that. I also looked at what kind of attention to detail he had because it's complete world building. So he needed to be able to build the world of the the city where it's kind of a crumbling post-apocalyptic city and also build the world of this underground abandoned subway system. So I looked for someone that would have that kind of detail. And I just looked at some of his work and the backgrounds were just so meticulous. I thought this is the kind of person I can work with. Cause if I give him really specific details, he's going to be able to really bring those words alive. Nice. So when you're building this world and you know, you're building the environment and you want this attention to detail, um, are you describing it to him through like a text narrative or is it, uh, you know, some Google images searches or like, hey, you know, this movie here, I kind of feel it, it's got like this sort of vibe to it um, or maybe a little bit of both of, you know, images and, and, and narrative. How, how is the world sort of described to Caesar? It's a little bit of all of those things because he's from Brazil. So there's definitely things he doesn't know about. And subways, all right, I had to send him pictures of kind of abandoned and wrecked subway cars, show what that would look like, pictures of what the actual subway system looks like underground because he had one before. So I had to describe it. And then his first question was, okay, what does this look like? I've never seen these before. So that's when I had to go and get Google searches. I even, when I was in New York, was snapping photographs the underground subway systems and kind of that way he can see what it really looks like and imagine all right now you see this big open area now imagine a city that's built here which is all these abandoned subway cars that were just left and ruined 
now they're going to turn those into homes. So it was a lot of description and then sending him images. And a lot of times I'll just, I'll, I'll just provide an image even if he doesn't ask, because I think, all right, this might be something he, he's not sure about. So I shoot the image over and the script will have images inserted throughout. Yeah, I think that, that that's something that I'm finding um, that's to, to be more common with the sort of the, the ability to either um, take a photo or to just sort of call up any almost any image uh, with a quick Google search that you're able to just sort of be like, this is, this is kind of what I'm thinking about. And then when you were talking about that, I w- that was really interesting, um, you know, as somebody who lives on the East Coast of the United States of America, I know what a subway is, but to somebody who lives in a, in a country that doesn't have that, that would have sort of be, I would have never really thought about that until that person came back and it's like, hey, I'm not familiar with that. We don't sort of have that mode of transportation in my country. So, so that's pretty interesting. Do you ever find yeah. um, when you're talking to him um, that you have to be careful of not using any sort of like, uh, you know, like American slang terms that, that, that he might not be familiar with. Um, Cause I've worked with people from Brazil and I've noticed that if I, if I just sort of operate on the assumption that like, you know, English is their first language or we, you know, we're, we're sort of from same backgrounds um, that I'll, I won't be descriptive enough. Um, so have you found that uh, in your communications? I've found some things that he definitely no idea what I was talking about. And in issue two, I say, okay, the character goes to a gin strip mall and he had no clue what I was talking about. Don't know this word strip mall. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So I had to go and just, again, kind of send some pictures of what a little strip mall is because to me in California, they're, they're commonplace. You know, you drive up, you see one, there's your grocery store, there's, your other small little corner stores and everything, but he had no clue. So that was something I had to go and provide pictures and explain. And generally, I think with every script, we'll run into four or five things that he's like, I'm not sure what this is. I don't, I'm not sure what, what this means. So I'll have to either find pictures or describe it in a way that's not using some term that wouldn't be familiar if you weren't from America. Sure. Um, so a little bit more between the, the, the communication between, with, between you and the artist. Um, and this may have changed over time, over the course of a couple of issues. Um, were you sort of reviewing art at various stages, like the thumbnail stage, loose pencils, um, you know, and then, you know, before, you know, and then you get the inks to just sort of make sure that each step of the way it's, it's sort of on target. And, and if you need to head something off, um, hopefully you can you get to it earlier like um, in pencils or, or in thumbnails like we're was that what you were doing yeah that's what in general he'll send me the um, the really just kind of raw outlines that are just lo- lots of loops I mean mm-hmm. to me I don't know how he turns those little loops into the you know the the amazing art he produces but I'll look at it in that way and then I just will run through each panel of the script and see okay we're going to need to shift that a little bit because this one's got a lot of dialogue and it's it's a tight panel, so we'll need to open it up. And then also, you know, when he sends me the first rough pencils, we still have room to make changes. And it's it's only happens or twice where a panel gets to the final production stage and it just 
doesn't quite work and he has to overlay a new panel. So there's been one or two where he needs to completely redo a panel and then overlay it digitally. So when I get those original pages, that panel won't match because it needed to be redone. And that was just one panel in issue five and I think one panel in issue two. But in general, I catch it before it gets to that inked phase and it's, it's not a problem. Very cool. And you had mentioned earlier that one of the things that was, you know, intriguing to you was the fact that uh, he works traditional. So yeah. um, do you from time to time or maybe every once in a while, do you get like an 11 by is it I'm assuming he draws like on an 11 by 17 board. Yeah. And did you do you have any of those pages to maybe like hang up and, and look uh <clears throat> at them and just sort of marvel in the fact that this used to be an idea in your head and now it's been turned into these, you know, sequential storytelling uh, beats on a page. I do, yeah, I've, I actually have all of the original art pages because he said he he doesn't care about them. He said they're just gonna sit in his closet and collect space that he doesn't have. So I've bought all of the original pages for issues one through five and yeah the cer there's certain ones that are for sale so if, if you looked on my kickstarter you would see that there are always three or four pages that i put up there but then there's the certain ones like okay this amazing splash page that he did and there's no way i'd be willing to part with that so those are the ones that wh what i want to do is create a display we haven't done it yet to create a display with the original cover and then put the comic book in front of it so you can kind of see how it came to be. And then, yeah, I just love flipping through it. I, I got one of the 11 by seven binders and you can just flip through and see your comic book created that way. I mean, and every issue is amazing, but I think nothing will top looking at issue one stuff. Cause it's like, those are ideas that were in my head for years. I started this story originally back in 1998. So we're talking years and years I've had this story and to finally be able to hold something, see it's actually there, it's into the world. That's just the craziest feeling. So they, the, the artist and the, the colorist, they, they have a past sort of working relationship. So um, um, is, is the colorist also located in Brazil? Actually located in Italy. Oh, okay. So so you there's got to be a process of, of him scanning and, and sending that uh, to her in, in Italy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he'll do the scans and then he does some finishing after he does his inks on the computer to make it a little bit easier for her to color. But yeah, he sends it and then uploads it. And then at that point, she does the colors and then she uploads it and the the letterer is local. He's a few miles away from me. So Kind of everybody's all over the place. Cool. So I think one of the, the fun things about um, being a writer and, you know, I've had this experience where I've worked with people who are in different time zones, like, uh, you know, I might trade notes with, with somebody and then sort of wake up um, to, to a page. So is there times where you, you see um, the, the scans of the art, you know, here in the States, you go to, you go to sleep and you wake up and there's a, I know a message that uh, there's a new colored page for, for you to look at. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot, especially it seems like, I don't know if Brazil is closer to our time zone. Cause we seem to be kind of up at the same hours, but with Italy, it's a lot of times, like I'll go to sleep, 
wake up with a message from from Viviana that'll say, okay, five pages are uploaded. So it's that kind of that surprise in the morning when you see that pages are up. So I know she's currently working on issues. So I'm kind of waiting for one of those texts that says, all right, pages are up and I can take a look at the first colored pages from that issue, which is nearly done. Caesar's done the first 23 pages, but in order to close it out in a way I was satisfied, it's actually going to be a page book instead of a 24. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the joys is the, to get a notification um, that there's, that there's new art to, to look at. So that, that's, that's gotta be a lot of fun to get that notification mm -hmm. and, and look at five pages of, of colored art there. Um, so your letterer, the, the, the friend that's uh, working in the library that sort of, you know, put the idea out that this should be a comic. Um, do you know what program he uses to, to, to letter in? I think he uses Adobe okay. for lettering. Okay. And, um, you know, he has this experience um, at the, at the, at the Kubert school. Um, and so was he able to sort of, help out because you know a lot of times when we talk about like lettering that you, you don't really notice it unless it's it's done you know not done well so i think maybe yeah. having somebody with that much experience and, and formal background was was that a benefit to you i think it definitely was because he also was able to help format everything correctly and my colorist had worked on um other comics she worked as a um a flat a flatterist for the Doctor Who comic, the female Doctor one. So she knew about the formatting as well, because honestly, when I went into issue one, I went in blind. I mean, never had any experience in publishing a comic book. So I went in with no knowledge of what I needed to do before I even sent it to the printer. So having the both of them on board really made it a better experience because she was able to look and say, okay, you're gonna need to modify the format to make it fit. And he was able to make everything was there. Cause I've seen some of the different books that I backed on Kickstarter. You see the middle of the cover is cut off. So, you know, you have the main title of the book and it's cut off a little bit. And that's one of those things where if I didn't have a team who knew better, I could have easily made that same kind of mistake. So it's, it's good to have people that know what they're doing in a process when you're walking in completely blind. Yeah. I think that that's one of the, 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 the unexpected hurdles that a, that an indie creator gets. Um, I know that when I've sent, um, you know, I, I think that I have everything squared away and I sent it, I sent it off, you know, upload the files and I'll get a message going, Hey, you know, you've kind of chopped off this balloon, look at this page. And then like, I'll have to, I'm lucky enough that I have, you know, folks that I've worked with that are tech savvy enough that they're like, okay, we, we can fix that here. But it's not one, it's something that you don't really think about until you get to that stage. And then yeah. you realize that there's so many ways that you could be tripped up and you're almost at the end. Um, and you've, you've put in all of this hard work at, uh, you know, writing the story, getting the story together, and you're so close, but this is still a critical part of it. And there's so many ways that it could be messed up. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and I, I back a lot of Kickstarter projects, and I have received so many that have pages where, yeah, that, that dialogue balloon is just cut. And 
it's, you know, it's, it makes me wonder that they get a proof or did they just say, you know what, I promised I'd deliver it in November. And if I fix it, it's not going to be done in time. So I, I don't know how it happens, but it's just scary because like you said, you're at the very end and you think, all right, everything's smooth. And then you can have that one little mistake that throws you back a few weeks. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's you, the closer you are, the more little things can go wrong. So it's always, it's always an adventure till you're actually holding the properly printed book in your hand. Yeah. And so with this being the, the, the fifth issue um, that of this series, you, you have some experience. Are you using the same, um printer that you've used in the past so that you sort of have like a relationship then you know sort of because i find that one thing is if you find a printer that has good customer service and is uh you know they'll let you know like if there's an issue with your files and and stuff like that that's a real benefit so are you have you found somebody that you're comfortable with and that you continue to use or is it a process where you're, you're using different services i've i've stuck with the same printer i use comics wellspring which is part of Greco printing and they were so full the first time because I was I wasn't just getting the books done because I was getting banners and backdrops and everything and they told me okay this isn't gonna fit this is gonna pixelate you gotta change this tweak that and they really helped guide me through the process of getting everything actually look good so once once they did that, I figured they they went out of their way. They were calling me saying, "Okay, right now you have nothing but black underneath here. Do you want us to add logos like the Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook? Do you want us to add your website? Just something to fill it in and make it look good, so you don't just have dead space." And and they're doing all these things. They could have just taken my money and sent mm-hmm. me whatever they sent me, and they wouldn't have done anything wrong. But the fact that they went out of their way to call me repeatedly to make sure that everything was right and everything was to my satisfaction, that made it to where they're definitely the people I'm going to stick with. And they've, they've made a couple of mistakes along the way, but anytime they do, I call them up and immediately they fix it. So, I mean, they're, they're definitely always there for me. And one of the people that I'm going to use, I'm not going to switch because they've done nothing but keep me around. That's great. Yeah, I think once you find somebody that you have that connection with and somebody, and as you said, they, they're, they're open, they communicate, um, they're willing to go sort of that extra step. That's, that's a very important resource to have. And it sounds like you found that. Yeah. Um, so I was going to maybe turn our attention to, to Kickstarter. Um, okay. So this is the, the fifth issue uh, I'm assuming you're doing things like digital catch-up tiers, physical catch-up mm-hmm. tiers. So if anybody who hadn't been on board um, before, they would able they would be able to um, do that. So do you want to talk a little bit about the, the the tiers and the way you're running this as an issue five in a series? Sure. Yeah, I, I definitely have what you're talking about. I have digital catch-up tiers and I have physical catch-up tiers. So right now issue one is on its um, its second print, issue two is on second print, and so is issue three. So people are, would be getting second prints of those, and then issues four and five would still be in first print. So they have the ability to get those. 
first prints of issue one, I'm trying to hunt down as many as I can. I'm going to comic shops that said, oh, maybe you haven't sold it. I'll get that back because I have a lot of people requesting that because I actually have a third print of issue one, but I haven't started sending them out yet because kind of saving that print to take around to cons with me. So there's a catch up tier. And then I always do an alternate cover. I, I use the term short print. I didn't realize it was more of a baseball card term than more uh, than a comic book one. So a lot of the comic people don't know what I'm talking about, but growing up collecting comics and cards, I just kind of interchangeably use those terms. So I do one cover that's regular and that's, you know, the standard one. And then I do one that I limit to 25 copies. So I have those ones available. And then I started by request of someone at a show I had done the these virgin sketch covers that are black and white covers that are just the raw artwork with no colors and no lettering so I have tears with those as well and then I also have CGC graded copies of the book because a lot of people are really into getting the graded stuff so when I get a new issue I always send a good chunk out to CGC so I have those available and as well as like I was saying earlier original artwork so there's a couple original artwork pages that I always throw out there for as availability. And yeah, I just try to give a good variety of, I still have t-shirts, I have hats, things like that. So people want to get any of that kind of merch. I make it available. I have a printer who's local and he does everything print to order. So makes it easier. I don't have to have a huge surplus that I, especially now that I have nine different designs, I don't want to have all of those sitting around my house because in general, in cons, people don't really buy the kind of things. It just makes your table look nice and diverse. So it's, it's things that I have on my Kickstarter because that way they can order them and I print only what I need. Okay. And when you do the, the, the shorter run, the, the 25 limited um, covers, um, Mm -hmm. do you, pursue a different artist to do those or is those are they done by by the same artist and it's just a different you know obviously different artwork there yeah so far i've used caesar for both of the covers but with issue six i'm looking to do something kind of special since that one will close out the arc and find uh, six different artists to do variant covers and still stick with the 25 limit because i like to have them in small quantities that way it makes it more special. It's not just like, okay, that I like that artwork better, but it's also more collectible. So I'm work, I'm going to work with different artists to have a variety of covers. And since it'll be the closing out of the arc, I'll tell them, you know, the, you can take art or story aspects from any part of the first six issues and just make a cover out of it, do something fun. So I already have two that are done and then other artists are already lined up to do those. So that one will have not just Caesar doing the alternate cover. It'll have six other artists doing it as well. Awesome. That's, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so I have, that actually opened me up to, to, to a question. Um, when you're able to collect this as a, at a trade in six, are you going to maybe do like a, like a, cover gallery of, of some of the stuff because you know maybe if I have you know cover a of issue three um, this will give me the ability to sort of just flip to the back or the front or whatever and go okay that that's what the other cover looks like and, and just sort of like have a cover yeah. gallery 
I definitely plan on doing that. When I do the trade, I kind of want to go all out because I love getting a, a packed trade when you get one. So I'm going to be including cover art, ec excerpts from the script. And um, there was, we did an art contest in, the, um, in 2020 when all the cons got canceled. I did a, an art contest on my Instagram and gave the grand prize as a CGC copy of issue one. So I'll put all of the artwork that was submitted for that, including one that was done by a girl who I had taught. And um, I, I told her, I said, oh, I'll throw it. So it'll have a cool cover gallery as well as the fan art from the contest, a script excerpt. And I actually have written an, an epilogue to, it, to the first story arc that won't be included in the basic issue, but will be put in there in the trade. So it has a little six page epilogue to that story arc that'll just be in the trade. Yeah, that's, I do. I do appreciate if it's uh, a single issue or if it's a collected edition, um, just a little bit of a variation. Um, I know some of like the Brubaker Phillips stuff, um, you get like essays mm -hmm. in the single issues that you don't get in the trade, but then, you know, there's stuff in the, in the yeah. trade, you might get some background material, some, you know, sketches and stuff like that. So it's always fun to have a little bit of variation um, in sort of the two mediums, yeah. uh, the single issues and the collected editions. Um, so with this being a fifth issue uh, of a series, when you are, are running this, um, how are you um, ensuring that, that, that people are seeing it? Um, do, do you have like an email mailing list? Are you going to like previous campaigns and like updating the, the campaign for three and saying, hey, um, just a little quick aside, uh, you know, you're a backer of three. Just want to let you know that, you know, we're currently up to the Kickstarter five. How are you making sure that people, um, you know, from the past Kickstarters, you know, past, um, you know, campaigns are, are knowing that there, that there's a issue five one going on right now. Kind of everything you, you touched on. I do put updates in the older Kickstarters because I did a Kickstarter for issue one, a Kickstarter for issues two and three combined, one for four, one for five. So I go in and I put updates in that like, okay, you guys, we're backers. So there's a new issue available. There's cover art. There's new CGCs, things that sold well in previous campaigns. I like to make sure that people know that they're out there and available. I do have a mailing list. Anytime I go to cons, I try to build up the mailing list. So it's up above 250 people now. And I know kind of the, the magic number is to get it at 100 to start. That's your first goal is to get 100 fans of the book, not just purchase a mailing list. Because I mean, as soon as you start running a Kickstarter, every starts coming out like, okay, let me get you all these top backers and let me give you this whole list of email. And it's like that are on that they're gonna just delete it like i would if it came in my inbox mm -hmm. market is spam so i want to build an actual mailing list of people that i met that signed up deliberately and have some sort of an interest in the book so i've done the mailing list i send it out um i, I try not to send out too many because i hate email myself and 90 percent of the email i get i just swipe away and delete as i'm getting it so I know if I'm sending a month, people are going to start getting irritated with me. So I limit it to one a month. And if it's a Kickstarter month, 
in the beginning of the Kickstarter and one in the end. So that's actually on my to-do list for tonight is getting that last email sent out with the five days to go notice and also letting people know about the con that I'll be at this weekend. So I try to do all of those things and then just post it all over Facebook, all the different indie comic groups and everything that are out there, constantly upgrade, updating it on my on my Instagram and on my Twitter, letting people know that it's out there and put it with new art every time. Cause sometimes you'll see someone promoting their own Kickstarter and it's just the same image over and over again. And I like to throw out new images so that it's at least it's appealing and they can see new artwork from the series. Yeah. I, you made a number of, of points there that I agree with. It's, it's a, you got to find that sweet spot of um, the, the mailing list, um, you know, where it's, it's important enough that um, I want to open it. And it's not something like, I'm like, oh, I just heard from this guy three days ago. Clearly, you know, nothing as much has changed. And I also like the fact that you brought up that you're always trying to use different imagery, which I think is important. Um, I, when I run a Kickstarter, um, you know, the, the Instagram post, uh, the, the photo that is going up in, in, in Twitter or on Facebook is different than the one that I used yesterday. Or like if, if I showed you the inked version, then I'll show you the colored version and go, Hey, look, this is, yeah. this is the inks to the colors. This is just sort of in this, or like, like a process pick, like sometimes like uh, I'll show you, like, this was the sketch. This was the inks. This was the colors, but it's always, I try to do it in a different way. So I think that that was another yeah. very, very valid point that you brought up there about varying the images and sort of the message that you're using. Um, mm -hmm. So um, are you, do you have the ability mentally or just sort of like with a spreadsheet, when you see a, a backer come in, do you know that this is somebody that's been along, um, you know, from issue one or do you just go, Oh, that name looks a little different. Let me uh, try to figure out how that person came aboard or is it, it, do you have that sort of tracking system? I, I do keep pretty close track of who's backing. So I know the originals, the ones that have started with issue one. And that was, that was a campaign where the good graces of my family and friends saved me from, from just imploding because I had no clue what I was doing. I mean, I looked at a couple Kickstarter pages and said, okay, I'll make mine look kind of like theirs because that one made $10,000. So if mine looks like that, it's going to make 10,000 as well. And just went in completely blind. So uh, the people that backed that, the, the ones that, you know, that I don't know, because that was my wife and I will always talk like, okay, did you get any backers today? Yeah. Do we know them? No. And that's what we're always looking for is we want new readers that aren't family and friends because eventually your family and friends will be like, all right, dude, <laughs> you keep asking for, for new issues and you just keep wanting to sell stuff. So, you know, I, I don't even read comics. I don't need to buy your next issue. But the readers, the ones you get organically through Kickstarter and through all of your social media, they're the ones that stick around. So I'm aware of all the people that have come from issue one and stuck around. And then there were a couple that maybe missed a campaign, but they came back this one. So yeah, I definitely know all of my original backers, the ones that I had no clue who they were and they just backed it because it sounded interesting to them on that first campaign. 
Nice. So I did a little bit of pre-show um, like research. I went in um, and was looking at some of the stuff that you've been posting. And I think one of the, the important things is like when I go through your um, your your Facebook feed, it's it's people sharing your project and you sharing um, projects. So it's sort of that community of, of indie comics makers um, yeah. helping you out there. So like, is that another thing that's, that's very important to you is to, um, you know, if it's somebody that, you know, um, and sort of like, like, and respect that's, you know, similar to you and, and, and feel to like share your campaign. And when it's there, when, when their campaign comes out, you share their campaign. Is that, that's something that seems like that's important to you. Yeah. I, I really like to network with others. And that's something that, I learned in my second campaign when I actually got a little bit of a clue. And it's just, you know, you gotta be out there supporting others. And one of the things I know some people have said, if, if there's a Kickstarter campaign and you see that this guy is asking for, you know, whatever they're asking for, and you see that they have no backed projects, it, it's a turnoff for a lot of backers because they wanna see, are you putting your money where your mouth is, all right? you're creating this book, but you don't support anybody else's. So I want people to see that I support these books. And if I, if I click that share button, sometimes, all right, I've maxed out how much money I have to spend on Kickstarter this month, but I can share your campaign four or five times just to show you, I, I really like your campaign. I like the idea. And then when you launch the next one, I'll get myself caught up. So working with other creators, you do that. And then they're always they'll go out of their way to share your campaign as well. And some of the people I know, they said, look, I can't afford to get one right now, but I'm gonna share it anytime you post it. So when you get a community like that, it puts new eyes on your project and that's invaluable. I mean, even if they don't give you a penny, they're just getting eyes to see that you exist. And one person who shared it today in the comments, I saw someone saying, oh, that sounds interesting. I've never heard of this title. I'm gonna give it a look. So someone who would have never looked at it otherwise is now interested in seeing it just because they shared it. And that's, you know, that's, that's priceless, priceless right there because it's my goal is to just get people hooked on the series, enjoying it and reading it for the long haul. Yeah. Uh, another point. I agree with you there. So you had mentioned that uh, you have a, a con coming up this weekend. Um, you know, as we're recording this, this is uh uh, September 28th of 2021. Do you, uh, do you want to say what con that is that's, that, that you're going to be at? Sure. Yeah, I'll be at Unicon in Las Vegas. So that one will be on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Nice. Um, so if you get somebody that comes up to your table where you have these books, um, uh, I guess maybe you're encouraging them to maybe join that mailing list you know if they were showing interest in the the physical books and let's just say at this point in time you're at issue three and you know you're gearing up for four so that's somebody that you probably want to have on that mailing list that's already shown a bit of interest in, in the project right mm -hmm. yeah. yeah that's the ones you're looking for ones who either that you know you go to a con you have limited funds and maybe they can't buy it that day but they're still interested in the story and the concept because sure I have a, a pitch ready to go when I hit the cons and I I have three pitches I'll have my my 10 second pitch my 30 second pitch and my one minute pitch so it's like all right however much time you have I have the pitch for you and I can give it to you and some people will say I love the pitch but 
I'm broke. I spent all my money. So let me sign up for your mailing list. And I've had a few as soon as the con in immediately go to my website. Hey, Ed, this is Matt. I'm just checking. Um, I think I might have lost you there for a second. This dude cares more about playing Angry Birds on his phone. I don't need to stop and look at this book unless the art is so spectacular that you can't help but stop. But in general, you're walking around a con. There's plenty of spectacular art to be seen. Cool. So, um... Let me ask you a question that I ask a lot of folks that I have on um, that are in the, the you know, they're, they're in the midst of running a Kickstarter. Um, for you, you're in an interesting point here that you're, you're towards the tail end. Uh, we're in the home stretch. But when you first launch or when you're in the campaign, um, are you a refresh every 30 seconds to see where you are? Are you able to maybe you know, go do something, come back and, and, and check, um, you know, where you are as far as counts and, and funding goals. Oh, I'm terrible. I need to look every five minutes. It feels like, like, oh, let me see, where are we at? What's going on? And I, I wish I could just leave it alone and sleep on it and wake up and see what's going on. But it pretty much, I launch it and then I'm constantly looking. I'm, I'm still bad. I mean, I'm checking it 20 times a day just to see. And right now it's kind of in those, those dog days where you don't get much activity, one a day, maybe two a day. And, you know, it, it's the first 48 and the second 48 where you really get that, that flurry of activity and everything else is kind of just, it moves along slow and steady. You'll get a good one here. Like I had someone buy an original cover a few days ago. That's always a big boost, but in general, it kind of moves along slow and steady and, Oh, it's, I wish I could just say, you know, I'm going to look at it in the morning and I'll look at it tomorrow morning, but no, it's okay. Let me check it at first break and let me check it at lunch. And I'm, I'm just terrible with that. Yeah. I, uh, I, um, in the same camp as, as you are, I'm a, uh, a constant checker, um, of, of where it is while the, while the Kickstarter is going on. Um, mm-hmm. awesome. Well, you know, this has been great to, to catch up with you. Um, but as we close up, um, you know, we're in late September here. You're going, um, do you want to say the, 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 the end date of the, uh, the Kickstarter here? Um, how long we have? The Kickstarter has just over five days. Let me see. I'll pull it up right now. So I know because I know it ends. It's going to end at a weird time when I'm in the middle of work, so I won't be able to look at it until actually after it's over. And I'll do kind of a a follow up on on Facebook. So it has five days, seventeen hours to go. So it's almost six days left, which puts it what? So it should be closing on Monday. Monday, the okay. 4th of October. Awesome. Um, so 
you know, we're, we're in the home stretch here and, you know, I'm going to post this very quick. So like, you know, just want to emphasize that the time is of the essence to, to get in on this book. Um, and the book is already funded, so it's going to get made. So you don't have that. There's, you know, sort of that question is, is, has been taken care of. Um, do you want to let folks know where they can find you, uh, online and give us that, that, that elevator pitch again for, for this book? Okay, so online, all of my social media is under Finish Line Comics. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I have a TikTok. I haven't done anything on it yet. I know I need to get kind of hip to what's what's popular right now, but I don't know how to do TikTok. I just established an account, but Finish Line Comics for all of the social media. And right now on Kickstarter as well, of course. And the elevator pitch for the story. I'll give it one more time. My story, Immortal Era, takes place 200 years in the future in a post-apocalyptic world where no one can die. It started with a mysterious event in the year 2000. The entire completely immortal, but with their immortality, they don't get any abilities or powers, but continue to get sick. If a limb gets cut off, nothing's going to grow back. One of my characters is a decapitated head who lives on a little flotation device that he had created for himself and it centers on a group of outcasts who live in the underground which is where the people in society considered unlegal citizens are forced to live and with one of their citizens born legally on the surface but still abandoned into the subway he serves as their forager gathering supplies and searching out relics from the past to discover exactly why people stop dying find a way to restore the natural life cycle and save humanity by killing them. Very cool. Um, you know that that just that book just just sounds just sounds awesome, and I'm I'm really excited uh, for it. Um, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna put a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes, link to your social media for anybody listening that just wants to you know click those show notes, scroll down, hit that link for the Kickstarter. Um, we just want to make it as easy as possible for them. So. Um, you know, Ed, it was it was great catching up with you, and uh, you know, hopefully, um, in a couple of months, uh, we can get together again and talk about six and uh, the collected edition. Yeah, cool. So um, awesome. So I'd like to thank everybody for listening. If you could give us a rating and review on the podcasting service you use, we really appreciate it. You want to follow the podcast? We're on Twitter, and that is at constructcompod. Instagram is Constructing Comics Pod and Facebook is Constructing Comics. Once again, thanks for listening. Please be safe, be nice, and go out there and make some comics. Thank you.